introduction. Dun 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 dun. This is Kennedy, and I am gonna read my poem called "I Am." <sighs> I am kind. I wonder if I am a good listener. I hear outside noises. I see beautiful colors. I want to be a good student. I am kind. I pretend to be a princess. I feel happy. I touch my mom. I worry about getting stuck in a trolley. I cry when people are mean to me. I am kind. I understand my work sometimes. I say nice things. I dream about unicorns. I try to be as organized as possible. I hope to be even more kind. I am kind. Welcome to Scholar Tea, where we are scholars giving you the tea. This is Cameron Carl. And this is Shauna. And welcome, y'all. So let's take the temperature. How are we feeling today? I think our temperature question for today is, what black actress or character is your mood on today? And right away, I thought about Jennifer Lewis. <laughs> I love her. She is the mother. And the more recent reason why would be because I liked to listen to her reading of her own autobiography. That was hilarious. It's hilarious. Please, yeah, if you have not listened to the audiobook, like you should read the book, but the audiobook is much better. It's so much better. You can't hear her talking about a prostitute <laughs> holding chicken in one hand and reaching around with the other while driving. It's just not the same reading it. <laughs> and I, I really do think she encapsulates how I feel today. Ooh, I like it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm going to go with uh, Mother, the other mother, mm. um, Angela Bassett, right? <sighs> like the end of the semester. And I feel like I'm juggling so much mm. and I need to show up in different ways in different spaces and be multidimensional, right? Like I'm doing everything from being the mother to Jackie, Jermaine, Tito, Marlon, <laughs> and Michael to taking down the man like Tina did Ike, right? Like I just really feel like I am having to play all these roles at the end of the semester and it's a lot and Angela just did it so well and I just feel like I can I can show up and, and do it she has an essence and you do have some badass arms <laughs> <laughs> you know I need to do some push-ups but okay thank you sis mm -hmm. hey sis <laughs> so let's get a rundown of today's episode <laughs> can you focus on okay so today's episode is going to be a fun one. We are going to highlight our Scholar of the Week, Dr. Felicia Commodore, and the work that she is doing. We have some hot topics. There is like some foolishness happening at the, the Southern Illinois University that I think we can talk about. We need to talk about how we balance our lives. And we solicited some tips from the masses. And we got a couple that we want to share with all of you. And then what's problematic? <laughs> this this concept of the humble brag. Me and Shauna have some thoughts about that. <laughs> and then the secret sauce. Those jokes of the week. <laughs> I got too much sauce. <laughs> sure. So should we get into it? We will. All right. And yes, this is a special episode where we're calling women of color together to discuss their experiences in the academy. We'd like to take a moment to dedicate this particular episode to our mothers, Nancy Spence and Carmen Beatty Taylor, who are with us in spirit and in our hearts, though are no longer with us on this earth. We recognize you and thank you for giving us guidance as we've grown into the people we've become. 
Our Scholar of the Week this week is Dr. Felicia Commodore. Dr. Commodore earned her doctorate in higher education from the University of Pennsylvania in 2015. Her areas of expertise include historically black colleges and universities, leadership, black women, governance, administrative practices, minority-serving institutions, and organizational behavior. Dr. Commodore is currently an assistant professor in educational foundations and leadership studies at Old Dominion University with a plethora of articles, chapters, and edited volumes under her belt. Recently, her work, The Tie That Binds, Trusteeship, Values, and the Decision-Making Process at AME-affiliated HBCUs was published with the Journal of Higher Education. Felicia is super dope and is on her way, if not already, to being a thought leader in higher education. You can at her on Twitter, at Felicia Elena. Please make sure you talk to her on the Twitters. I don't know how to do that, but you go ahead and tag her, at her. I think she'll really appreciate it. Show her some love. So I'm sure you heard about this because we, we kind of we talked about it a little bit in a little group chat. So let's bring it to the masses because I think they've heard about it too. Southern Illinois University is recruiting PhD grads to volunteer, not paid time, volunteer time, for faculty positions. Duties include teaching undergrad and grad classes, committee services, and thesis supervisions. And they're framing it as to get academic professional experience. So it's real in the field. (laughs) What are your thoughts on this? Well, I believe in payment for labor. And I believe those that sometimes do the hardest and most arduous labor are less inclined to be the paid individuals. Mm. So, of course, my first reaction is, oh, like we've got our priorities messed up, not as an institution, but as a nation. Right. Mm. Because Mm -hmm. that means Southern Illinois University is a public institution. And so to me, that signals Illinois is not taking care of that institution. This country is not taking care of that institution. Thus, the individuals that make sure that institution is functioning, they're not being cared for. Well, that state has not had a balanced budget. And those state institutions in that state, people have been fired, people have been laid off. So because you can't get your financial situation together, you're now going to exploit the work, the labor. First of all, I'm like, who the hell is going to sign up for this, right? And for me, I'm like, I know no one that I surround myself with, they're going to buy into this. But I'm like, there are going to be some people I'm like, hey, I need this experience. This will be great experience. They read the job description like, oh, Oh, this would be great on my resume. And they're going to sign up to do this. And I cringe. I really do cringe. I think people that are privileged enough to be able to be volunteers Ooh, that's do a, it. That's a good point. I didn't, mm-hmm. even, I didn't even think about it from that mm-hmm. lens. Oh, that's a good point. Still, like, that indicates to me that you have a level of privilege that most of us don't. That means to me, maybe you don't have student loans or you have someone that is paying for your student loans so you can do that kind of work for free. But again, I think this is just targeting a particular population that has already gone through several different hurdles just to get to where they are only to find themselves being asked to volunteer for their time and time is money. So what I'm nervous about is if this works even a fraction and other institutions buying into this bullcrap. If nothing else it's heralding also what we're seeing with the faculty position in general right like we're seeing more folks that are adjunct we're seeing more lecturers or instructors. Been a trend for a while now. Mm -hmm. And so the tenure lines are faltering Uh, FTEs aren't as readily available. And then particularly within the field of higher education, 
when people are thinking about education as it relates to business or monetary value, higher education, when compared to engineering or econ or statistics or math, they put a, a numbered value on that kind of work, even though it is reliable, it is sustainable and functional, and it's really good work. Politicians don't understand the value of why higher education as a field has value. Right. So those are my initial thoughts. I am keeping those people in my thoughts because that has to be also a difficult decision to make because you also realize that you have a student body that you need to provide service to and you're trying to just figure it out and make it work. Where do you think this came from? Where did this idea come from where I'm going to write up a call for volunteers of labor? I don't know. I'm a visual person. So the kind of person that I think would write something up like that is probably nearing completion of their career in the academy. And they're like, ah, got it. Uh Uh-huh. Solving the budget crisis. I'm going to ask for volunteers. Yes. And they will come. And I'm going to mask it in a great professional experience. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Get a life. (laughs) That pisses me off. Yeah. Maybe they should retire and give space to people that bring some different types of skill sets to the table if they're asking for folks to not be paid for the work that they get paid for. Right. That's what's happening in these academic streets this week. As a quick introduction, we are women of color who are individuals, mothers, scholars, activists, and just dope as hell. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with doctors Virginia Cook-Tickles, Denise Davis-May, Symphony Oxendine, and Sadia Yacoub. Thank you in advance for your time and those gems that you're guaranteed to drop today. Let's begin with introductions. Can you please introduce yourselves and let folks know a little bit about who you are and how you're situated in this world? I am Virginia Cook-Tickles. I am an aerospace engineer at NASA in Huntsville, Alabama. I have spent a couple of years, I've been at NASA for about 29 years, um, retiring in about 355 days. Oh. <laughs> I've also worked at Tennessee State and Jackson State as an educator in their schools of engineering. I am the mother of six college graduates, of six women, and I come from a large family, so you know, I naturally thought that having a, a large family was in my best interest. And thus far, it's worked out pretty well. And I'm pretty transparent about who I am and what I do. I think one thing I would like for people to know about me is a lot of times when people meet me or they see me, they assume that I'm unapproachable. I think it has to do with this frown that's on my face. But a lot of times it's the face that I show when I'm in deep thought. I think that's the main thing that I would really like for people to understand that I'm not as unapproachable as I look sometimes. Hi, I am Denise Davis-May. I am a faculty member at Alabama State University in social work. I've been teaching for uh, approaching 18 years and have about 26 years social work practice experience. I am a wife and a mom and a caretaker for my 88-year-old mother who lives with me. And I come from a small family compared to (laughs) Dr. Tickles. In terms of my immediate family, uh, my extended family is large. I wish people knew that 
I come from a uh, working class background. People presume differently. So I have deep connections to areas, uh, particularly in New York, that folks often disparage. But I just wish that folk knew how connected communities actually are to the rest of the world. Hi, I'm Symphony Oxendine. I'm Cherokee and Choctaw, originally from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I am an assistant professor of higher education at University of North Carolina, Wilmington. I've been a faculty member since 2014, and before then I was a student affairs professional for six years working in different functional areas. I have two daughters, Sonata and Aria, ages seven and nine, who I lovingly refer to as Diva and Attitude, <laughs> and I am married and live in Lumberton, North Carolina, where um, my husband, who's Lumbee, his tribe is located, and so we're raising our two daughters in the Lumbee tribe. My family lives in Oklahoma, except for my mom, and what I remember about growing up is I grew up off, in quote, off, and so what that means is that I grew up outside of my tribal community, which caused, I think, a lot of identity issues with me. And that's what I want people to know about me is like this identity struggle as an indigenous person that I have because I wasn't raised in the tribal community because my mom was getting her education. And so we moved around a lot while she did that. And it's caused a lot of vulnerability in my identity and how I view myself because I wasn't raised only in the Cherokee community. I was raised around other Native people. So, But it was good because I got to meet a lot of different diverse indigenous folk in different communities. I'm Shauna Patterson-Stevens, and I am married with a young 11-year-old daughter of color in a very rural space. I I also come from a working-class background to the extent that I was raised in the military, and so I get a little antsy when it comes to staying in locations for a certain amount of time because we always moved once every other year, and then my parents divorced, so they would bounce me around between locales. When my mom was in Korea, I was not able to go, so I lived with my dad and California. And then when he went off to Italy, he wasn't able to bring his children. So I stayed with my mom in Florida. So like we bounced around a lot. I called Detroit my home because it's where I spent a more significant amount of time as a teenager. And that's where I graduated from high school. And a lot of my friends are still very much there. So that's my home. I am multiracial. However, uh, my mom, a white woman in the 80s, working class in the military, uh, was very adamant about naming me as a black child. She raised me as a black child. And I think sometimes people see my utterances of saying I'm a black woman as me self-hating. And I'm like, no, that's actually just how I was raised. Mm -hmm. I'm Sadia Yaqub. I am an assistant professor of religion at Williams College in uh, also this rural town (laughs) in Massachusetts that Shauna mentioned. And I teach on issues at the intersection of Islam, gender, and race. My husband is Syrian-American by background, so we are a mixed-race family. I am uh, South Asian by background. My family is from Pakistan. I was actually born and raised in Pakistan and came to the U.S. when I was 15. My daughter is only just two now, and, and so I'm kind of in this space now where I think a lot about what it means to raise my child in rural New England in a mixed-race family where she has two heritages that I want to teach her about. And then, you know, myself sort 
of being in this space where I moved from one country to another country. And that sort of transience of my family has a longer history because my grandparents left India to move to Pakistan in 1947 during the partition. And so I've been thinking a lot about, you know, sense of belonging and how identity uh, ties into that. And, and so those are things that are really on my mind and connected to that in terms of, you know, something that I wish people knew about me is that I'm South Asian. I, it's really interesting to me the different ways in which I get racialized because I'm also Muslim. And so there's a way in which I get racialized often as a Muslim and that's often equated or assumed to be Arab. And, and so I feel like there's this whole part of who I am as a South Asian that never has any recognition, which makes it difficult for me to express that side of myself. We all have different backgrounds. We all have something different that we bring to the academy. And in thinking about our identities and how they all connect, how do you define motherhood? You know, when I, I never really thought about the definition of motherhood. I never really even think about it. My great-grandmother had 15. My grandmother had 11. My mother had nine. I had six. And, you know, the role just is something that I always knew that I would take on, and it's just something that I did. And the process, though, of raising as many daughters as I've attempted to raise or have raised, I'm finding that it's a dynamic role, one that, that I'll have until I leave this earth. But it's one that requires a lot of nurturing, and it's almost like having someone hijack your whole heart, and then you're responsible for helping them to navigate in a space that you're even still trying to navigate in. So I'm learning as I'm going, but at the same time, I'm teaching them. So the role changes. I'm a different mother to you know, six of them, they got different personalities. They require a different mother. So I'm just finding that it's a role that I'm constantly having to change in, and it's constantly challenging me as well. When you when you identified the dynamism of motherhood, I immediately thought about how motherhood changes. The state of motherhood or the state of being a mother changes across the trajectory of your child's life. So just being <laughs> enough for your child, whatever that is, for the six children that Dr. Tickles um, has brought into this world, it means being what they need to the level that you can across their lifetime. And so motherhood it is dynamic in that what it requires of you changes from the state of one of the sisters who just said her child is two or, or a toddler to, you know, the 30-year-olds that Dr. Tickles currently has. So, yeah, I think that the issue is that it, it changes. And I talked with a mom yesterday. I, I have a, a motherhood uh, podcast, The Mommy Chronicles, and one of the moms saw me in the street and, and she said, I just wish you all had counseling available because I'm just not doing well. And I think we seek a definition, a, a standard definition that doesn't work across all mothering experiences. Um, we have to be the mothers we can be in the context of our family. Yeah, the dynamism thing really spoke to me as well because you know thinking about my daughter just in the past two years how much she has changed and I've just been thinking about how this is the first time in my life I feel like consciously at least as an adult I'm in a relationship where the person I'm in a relationship with is constantly changing and the <laughs> dynamics of our relationship is constantly changing and so what it means to be a mother to an infant versus a toddler versus when she becomes a teenager you know is just so different to me like motherhood is a sense of responsibility that I feel to raise this human being but what exactly it means to be a mother just in these two years has shifted so much that, you know, it's like I'm in this relationship with a human being who just constantly changes. And that requires me to constantly change being a mother to her. 
even before I became a mother, and I, as I was thinking about motherhood and, and having children, even before I, I married my husband, I had to, as an Indigenous person, I was thinking about if and when I have kids, what is their identity going to be? That I'm a mixed race, I'm white and Cherokee and Choctaw, and if I marry someone who's neither of those tribes, what does that mean for my children's identity and their ability to be a citizen of their nation? You know, and that's a political identity that a lot of people don't understand about Indigenous people, is that political piece. So even before I became a mother, I was really constantly thinking about what identity my decisions would have on my children. So now that I am a mother and I live away from my traditional territory and my people, my children are enrolled citizens of the Lumbee Nation. And we have sacrificed our careers because we committed that our children needed to be raised in their traditional community with my husband's people. And what that means for us is that they need to know who their ancestors are. They need to know who they are, where they come from, where I come from, what that means for them and their identity as multi-tribal people and multi-racial people. And every day I think about how do we help these young people resist assimilation, resist these colonization, you know, attempts at trying to get them to be what everyone else expects them to be. But at the same time, how do I also teach them these indigenous truths and knowledge to revitalize our culture and our community? You know, as each generation comes, we're healing from trauma from our ancestors that we're also passing down within our genetics. By doing that, it's super important for me to constantly check my own stuff, right, about my identity and how I was raised, but where are my children now and that their space is different from the space I grew up in and how does that play into who they become as Indigenous women in this world? Yeah. So one of the things that my husband and I made as a very conscious decision with our daughter was to teach her both Arabic and Urdu. So she's growing up trilingual. And I think for us, that was very important precisely because we wanted to make sure that she knows of the possibility of another world and way of existing. That her sense of identity is obviously it's going to be political in a way because she will be identified as a person of color. But that comes with also this history and literature literature and, you know, way of thinking that is different than what she would acquire if she was both only speaking English and around people who primarily engage with English-speaking histories. I always thought of it in much more grand ways in, in, in the sense of, like, you know, teaching her what it means to respect elders, you know, what it means for me to be her mother and the different expectations that that has. But even at the very minute level, I've been noticing it. So at some point, she learned the song Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. And so then my husband and I started figuring out, okay, how can we translate these for her in, into Arabic and Urdu? And then I was like, well, what we have in Urdu is a song that is about the moon, which is a kind of equivalent in the sense that you're thinking about the sky and teaching children to think about it. But what we focus on is the moon and not the star. And so just to introduce her to that idea itself, right, that when she looks at the sky, she doesn't have to focus on the star because that's what that song teaches her. In Urdu, she learns to think about the moon. And now she has this very strong connection to the moon because I sing her that song so much. So even at that level of minutia of like, what is it in the natural world that you are teaching children to notice through nursery rhymes? I didn't even realize this is what that would mean to raise her in different language traditions. But that was really important for us in teaching her that there isn't just one way of being human in this world. 
I absolutely can resonate with that because, as I mentioned, my husband and I were both higher education professionals. You know, we live in a very rural area in North Carolina where the tribe is located, and we made a commitment that we were going to sacrifice whatever we had to do to raise our children within their community and with, you know, our family and in that culture because there are things that they can't get by being outside of the tribal territory. So, like, Lumbee people don't have their original language prevalent, and so there's a dialect. So my children have already learned how to code switch between the Lumbee dialect and what people call proper English. Even small things like the difference between daddy and daddy, like the Southern Lumbee dialect, is something they cannot get if we move elsewhere. You know, a lot of times in academia, people are like, you have to move to move up. You're going to be stagnant where you're at if you only stay at one institution. And I'm like, well, okay, but I can't move the whole tribe to New York with my kids to get that cultural knowledge and values. I mean, I can still teach the values, but a lot of that knowledge is things that you get by being immersed in your nation. But I don't think that there's this more deeper understanding of the connection to land and the connection to home and how important that is for our people. Lots of times I feel very judged. There's just not this understanding of these deeper seated requirements of what we expect as parents and what I expect as a mother. I think that's really interesting. If I'm not mistaken, Dr. Tickles and I have had similar discussions. We are at least eight generations deep here in the States. Both of us have roots in the South, but in a very particular strata. And when you are upwardly mobile, and as a result of that upward mobility, you you move into communities that are not culturally linked to your culture of origin and you raise your children with the understanding that there ought to still be an affinity toward that original culture and not only an affinity but some level of knowledge. It speaks to that whole piece of coming from entrenched cultures and then moving into the academy which has a predominant cultural way of being and expectation around what you value, so including valuing moving to larger institutions in more metropolitan cities as opposed to being in rural communities. Um, I live on a farm, have been blessed to be able to be in spaces that were in close enough proximity for me to be able to maintain that lifestyle for my children and be able to pursue my academic career at the same level had I been, you know, in a metropolitan area. So I think the cultural pieces that the two of you are mentioning can be linked to folk who are coming from spaces that are not heavily represented in the academy. Mm-hmm. One of the challenges I had, having a technical degree and coming from a city like New Orleans who really don't have a lot of work in that space for engineers, Finding a job that would keep me south um, was difficult, but landing in Huntsville still brought its challenges because, you know, my children went to school in predominantly white school districts. Since we've been here, the numbers are getting better. But one of the things that I had to make sure is to keep them linked to the things that were culturally important to myself and connected to their roots as well. So, you know, New Orleans came here. We went to New Orleans. We brought our culture wherever we went. Um, But one of the things that I had to do in making that decision, I decided that since they were going to be in the world competing with predominantly white people in the fields that they were going to be choosing, I wanted to make sure that they understood that they could compete. Now, whether they chose to do that, that was on them. But when it came time to do the college part of what they were going to do, that's when we talked about it. And that's what helped them to choose 
to go to an HBCU so that they can tie into their culture a little bit stronger as opposed to holidays and weekends and just times when we get a chance to go to New Orleans. And as a result, they've grown tremendously and they've been able to get that well-roundedness that they were coming out of high school lacking. So those are some of the decisions that we're faced with in trying to have a career, be a mother, for them to become their best. Yeah, one of the first things I did when it became real to me that, you know, I was going to become a mother was, you know, pick up those parenting manuals, <laughs> you know, these different theories of parenting and, and then starting to feel like, well, none of these actually speak to what to me seems instinctual. My mother is an incredible mother and she also had a strong mother. There are these traditions that we have of mothering that were informing me in ways that I didn't recognize that that was my instinct. Being a mother in a particular way was part of my instinct. And once my daughter was born, it sort of kicked in. And, and I call my mother when, you know, there are particular things that I'm struggling with to ask her and also ask other women. Because very quickly, I realized that these parenting theories that get presented in these books, they're presented in the sort of language of a kind of scientific knowledge that is not based in a particular culture, that it somehow is objective and academic. But really, it is speaking from a very particular cultural notion of what it means to be a parent. And so that was one of my sort of struggles right in the beginning was to trust that instinct that I had and to trust that knowledge that I had available to me through my mother, through other older women in the community that had raised their children, my peers that I grew up with who now had children who were also thinking about what it means to be a parent that was not embedded in, you know, what those parenting manuals were telling us what it means to be a parent. I mean, even the idea to me of discipline, it's like there's no real exact translation of the word discipline in Urdu, right, which tells me something about what kind of relationship parents and children have to one another when you don't think in this language of disciplining your child into, you know, being a certain way. So that for me was one of the ways and it took me a while to kind of realize that the disconnect that I was feeling was not because I was a young mother and I didn't know how to mother properly and that, that what my mother was telling me wasn't the right kind of knowledge, but that what I needed to actually question this discourse that was being presented as scientific and objective and academic, which was actually embedded in a particular cultural norm that that doesn't take women of color and their histories and their traditions into account. Mm -hmm. I think I get a lot of flack for my use of touch, for example, and not even just from people around me, but sometimes even from my own family. We won't spank. I've never had to. And that's a problem for a lot of people in my community. But the other aspect of it is I think it's okay to show affection. And oftentimes I get criticized from my family members even saying that I'm being too soft on her. Like, why is she in your lap? I mean, she's about five foot 20 now. But <laughs> when she was six, she was still pretty tall. She's like four feet tall. Um, and they were like, well, she's so big. Why are you holding her? And I'm like, because she's six. And she's just a baby and she's only going to be a baby for so long and then she's going to grow up. And I think it's OK to allow her to lay in my bed if she wants to or lay over me or cuddle under me because one day she's not going to anymore. Um, and I've noticed that's been a thing that I've been resisting against. Even in the, the raising of my six daughters, I can probably think of three times maybe that I've had to actually spank someone. Exactly. And you think about all the dynamics. My youngest daughter is 24. The oldest is 32. That is 
six girls within an eight-year time period. So for me, I understood that it wasn't as much about me having to spank them as it was for me to have that psychological connection with them, where they understood levels Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. discipline based upon what was going on at the time. So they never really got to that threshold often, only because I had other things in place that they knew they were stepping in dangerous territory. So Mm -hmm. I hear the story about discipline and spanking, and, and I do think that there are ways around it if you are in tune with who you are raised. Mm-hmm. I do know that there are some things outside of the boundaries when we talk about behavioral problems and stuff, but I'm talking about when you're just raising kids who are going to be kids, if you really know the, mm-hmm. the, the child or the children that you're raising and you understand the interactions, then I even had to understand how they play off of one another. When you mm-hmm. get into all of that, there's ways to make things happen without the spanking, but I do understand how family members who believe in spanking don't understand that you don't believe in spanking. And what I did a lot of is if I knew it was going to be an environment where the energy of the children would be abrasive to others, then we just didn't frequent those environments. Uh, during that time because spanking just wasn't on the top of my agenda when it came to discipline. You know, for me, it was more mm-hmm. about learning and consequences of based upon understanding why you shouldn't do certain things so that you won't repeat it. I think there's a difference between if it's necessary actually doing it versus spanking a child for being a child. Yeah. And I was yeah. the one that would get hit for like laying across a couch. You're supposed to sit, right? Mm-hmm. Or um, don't play in the house, you know, or, oh, you didn't clean your room. Like those are typical yeah. things that a child is going to do. Right. I think there are, like you said, other ways to manage that. But that was just a go-to. And I understood that was learned behavior. But I wanted to unlearn that for my family. How do you juggle the different aspects of your life while preserving pieces of yourself? And I intentionally don't use balance. I'm just over that word. <laughs> but it is a juggling act. You know, I've had a lot of <laughs> Because I've had a lot of people ask that when I was a full-time doc student and a stay-at-home mom of two under three, and my program was two and a half hours away, so I was driving that far there and back three times a week. And the ways in which I think about it is you just do it. I would love to say that there's a magical formula, (laughs) but honestly, for me, it was I relied on my family. Before I even went back to get my doctorate, I asked my family, this is what I'm thinking of doing, but if I do this, I'll need help. And are you all willing to help? And they said yes. And so, I mean, had they not said that, I probably wouldn't have done it because I wanted to make sure my children were being taken care of. I don't know. You just do it. I'm still learning how to preserve pieces of myself. Like, I don't have hobbies. My hobbies are going to softball games on the weekends with my kids. So I just put one foot in front of the other and just kept going. No, that was pretty good because that's what I tell people. I'm like the Nike commercial. You know, I just, you just do it. A lot of times for me, there's a lot of interconnectedness. In my life, you know, when you mentioned going to softball games, I played softball as a child. So when I go to their softball game, it's part of my hobby. It's part of what I enjoy. So there's some things that we do that are interconnected. And then those other areas that aren't those things that I want to do. For instance, I spent a couple of years away uh, when I went to teach at the universities where I was back and forth on the highway trying to still get two daughters through high school, but at the same time teach at the university and still trying to support some of the extracurricular activities. You know, the village is really mm-hmm. is really what allows me to be able to hold on to me. I built the village. I have other mothers and friends and people in the community who, in a lot of ways, admire the effort that I put into the mothering. So whenever they get the opportunity to assist me in that, you know, they, they don't mind doing it. If not for the village, I don't know if I would have those pieces of me that I need in order to continue to do what I do. We see the great parts of motherhood, and, you know, there are some rewards to it. But I tell people all the time that, you know, it is a lot 
lot of work and it takes a lot out of us. And a lot of mothers, they don't want to hear that side of it. But there are times when Mm -hmm. I just absolutely don't feel like mothering. And I'm not ashamed to say that. But I still show up. If I don't show up, the village shows up. And I take a breath of fresh air and then I come back even stronger. So I just think that we have to learn how to save ourselves in a sense by depending upon others in the village who also have some of the same values and goals and desires for even their children. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I love that you said the village because, you know, oftentimes I hear it because it's like a sexy term, right? It's like, oh, your tribe. And I'm like, no, but really my tribe. Like, no, no, really, literally. For us, it it absolutely was our support system in our community, our family. And I think the other piece that I would like to say that you touched on is not to feel guilty about it. I can't beat myself up because I'm not there for every single moment of every single day. That's not doing my children any good when there's nothing later for me to go back to when they're grown because I only invested in them 100% mm-hmm. of the time. Our humanness, I think, is part of that, right? And yeah. and absolutely not feeling like if people didn't want to watch my kids for me, they would say no. You know how it is trying to find babysitters, right? Like, so if they didn't want to watch my kids, they would say no. But when they say yes, I believe them that they love and care for us, our lives, my children. I just was like, why do I feel guilty when people say yes to keeping my kids? They're making those connections with, you know, their kin, their their community. So that's another piece of it, too, is just giving yourself some grace to be human. Yeah, I think for me, the one thing that is to kind of distinguish priorities, you know, like I, I kind of came to this point where I was like, OK, I need to figure out what are the things that to me are important to get done so that I don't feel that guilt. And then what are the things that are just not important? So it was like, you know, for me, it's absolutely important that my child is sleeping well and, it, you know, has home cooked food and for my child to live in a home that's clean all the time, that looks really beautiful. Like those things are, are not important. And the fact that I love what I do makes me a good mother to her. And so I'm not going to feel guilty about the fact that I work and that she goes to daycare, even though she is very young. And because those were some of the things that I initially was feeling. And then I was like, no, but I am a good mother to her because I feel fulfilled in what it is that I do. But that meant figuring out what the priorities were. What is it at work that I'm going to just decide I'm not going to pursue, right? What are those sacrifices that I need to make? Or what's that moment where I need to say, okay, that's enough class prep, (laughs) you know, like go home to go home and feel like, okay, the house is an utter mess, right? The laundry's in a pile. I'm searching for, (laughs) but, and that's okay. I don't care. Right. Because my child is happy and I'm happy and my husband is happy. One of the things that one of the sisters said about moments where I just don't feel like being a mother and being okay with that. You know, my husband's been great because I certainly, especially at night when she wakes up in the middle of the night, have these moments where I'm like, I just don't (laughs) feel like being her mother right now. Mm -hmm. You know, and he's great about those moments where he gets up and he's like, okay. I'll go. The reason that my husband and I have been able to conference is because my sister comes. She leaves everything and she comes for days to go and take care of our daughter so that we can conference. And my mother, despite the fact that she's at an age where I should be caring for her, is still coming and caring for me by caring for my daughters. For me internally, I feel like the biggest thing has been just deciding what are priorities and what are the things Mm -hmm. that I have to say, I just don't care. Well, we're going to move on to the game. I found some songs, and you just have to figure out what word is missing out of the blank. Okay. Blank Mama by Tupac. Dear Mama. Dear Mama. Yep. Mama said blank you out. LL Cool J. Mama said knock you out. Knock you out. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, She's a blank Mama Jamma by Stevie Wonder. Bad. Bad Mama Jamma. Mm -hmm. Bad Mama Jamma. She blanket from her mama, Juvenile. 
She get it from her. She mama. get it from her. <laughs> Back that thing up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this goes blank. My baby mamas. Fantasia. Next. <laughs> yeah, this one. <laughs> this was her baby mama song, and it's this goes out to all my baby mamas. Mm. Mama always told me this was blank happen, but she never told me when. Puff Daddy. Mama always told me this was gonna happen. This was gonna happen. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh okay. It's like I can hear. <laughs> but this she thing. never told me when. Yep. Well, thank you all for calling in, taking time out on uh, what is probably a very busy day to share your pearls of wisdom. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, sis. Thank you again to these brilliant women for giving us a word today. We truly appreciate your willingness to share your thoughts and your time with us. Happy Mother's Day. So should we spill a little tea? Yes. Um, so recently we asked folks to share how they create balance in their lives. Um, we also asked you to provide us with daily um, sources or motivation or challenges that you're currently facing. So Aja writes... I set aside some cash to buy some gift cards to places to eat, to movies, spa, and other outings. And I do this twice a year. Once I have purchased them, I then schedule Love Aja Day once a month. And then I use one of my gift cards since the money is already spent. I also have a social media free weekend each month where I do not log in, do not check in, nothing that has to do with social media. That is how I make sure self-care and balance is a priority in my life. I really liked Aja's tips, right? Like those are things that like you make an intentional decision about and then you schedule them, right? Like that is your time. That is your space. You've already spent the money. So in some ways you feel obligated to honor that. So I really love, I really love those. And thank you, Aja, for submitting your tips. Yeah. Hey, Dr. Holmes. That's my friend. Hey. So for me, I just need time by myself. I'm a fake extrovert, so I really need some time alone. And there's some weekends that I can be in the house from Friday evening to Monday morning. And some people are like, oh, are you depressed? I'm like, no, I just, this week wore me out and it wore me out because of the people. (laughs) If I've come off of like a high energy, high people contact time. So we talked about me going to um, Beachella or conference season. Like I always schedule the weekend after I get back from a big trip like that is me time. Like, I just can't be around the people. I have MoviePass. Are you familiar with MoviePass? Mm-mm. So a friend put me on, shout out to a friend, put me on to MoviePass and it's like Netflix, but with the movie theater. So you get a credit card. It's $9.99 a month. I think actually think they have a deal, $7.99. You can use the card for a movie every day. So I take myself to the movies. Like I try to do it at least a few times a month, take myself to the movies and experience it. Yeah. Wait, I get a card that I spend nine ninety nine a month for and I could take it every day in a month to the movie theater. It's called Movie Pass. Moviepass.com. You might have changed my life. It is amazing. Like it like if you use it twice in a month, it's paid for itself. Especially here in Massachusetts. I don't, I don't know where y'all live, but the movies are expensive. Movies are $15. And, yeah, they're expensive here in the Northeast in New England. So I, I've been using my movie pass. And I've really, and, I, and this movie's probably, I probably would not have seen. But I've also seen some good movies more than once. I saw Love, Simon a couple of times. I wanted my movie pass money back for that Taraji P. Henson movie. Um, I have a friend that I've been doing this common read with. 
So we choose like a self-work, self-help book, and then we map out times during the month that we're going to check in and process sections of the book. And it's been a really enriching and rewarding experience to not only like self-discovery, self-exploration, self-care, self-work, but also building a stronger friendship with that person. I should have gone first. That was way deep and beautiful. I'm a pretty simple person, y'all. That was nice. And I'm going to try that with a friend. We tried to do a book of the month club with my circle in Detroit. We should once. talk about a scholar, a scholar tea book thing. Let's Maybe do it. Maybe this summer. Okay. Maybe y'all let's chat about that. Boom. Okay. We're going to talk about that. Yeah. We'll bring it back to the people. <laughs> I, I tried to do book of the month or something with my friends and it fell off real quick, but I read the book. So I do try to spend time with my family and my friends. I also just need a moment to be quiet, like not talk. And that moment could be three hours. But I need to be just burrowed for a little while and away from noise and away from people. I might be streaming television. I might just be reading a book or being quiet. And that works for me. I like to travel, but my work schedule won't allow for me (laughs) to happen too often. And I also just have a lot of obligations at home with family. So that is a little bit more limited. So then I'll go outside and take a walk when it's pretty or I'll go hiking. I've become a hiker. You have. I have. And I didn't think that would be <laughs> You'd be me. hiking in the winter. I'm like, what is she doing? Who does that? I don't do that shit. <laughs> you, I've seen snow in some of them pictures. From the picture. Like from the window. Or if I'm walking to my car. <laughs> I'm not there yet. I'll never be there. Oh, I know what you're talking about. So there are moments when we'll go to the golf course because they, they open it up to the public in the winter. And we'll go sledding or Kennedy wants to go skiing. Oh, we okay. will walk through the I'll golf like course. like y'all hiking. Okay. Yeah, no, that's a golf course. No, I'm not that great granola yet and then my art and graphic design I do a lot of graphic design and artwork my mediums are um, watercolor or oil painting or acrylic painting and um, more recently my sister recently started a t-shirt line called empowerment clothes and it's meant to empower girls and so I do the designs for her oh I did not know that Mm -hmm. so right now we're working on um, a graphic series for little girls of color where they're like blowing bubbles or something like it's actual face to put on the t-shirt and uh that's just some things that I do with my free time. I think that's deep. Oh, thank you. Yeah. It's not soul searching though, so it didn't feel the same. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's still space and time for people to provide us. So maybe if you all could tweet or Facebook kind of how you take care of yourself, what does self-care look like for you? And can you provide tips for others and how you do that? Hashtag it on Facebook or hashtag it on Twitter. How you self-care, hashtag scholar tea. Ooh, so y'all better stop being humble braggers on social media. Yikes. The humble, not so humble brag on social media and masking your bragging in you being humble. <laughs> it's a pet peeve of mine. It is a big old pet peeve. I think it's really exciting to share your accomplishments. Yeah. And, and I think that you should use that space to do it. But don't mask it in a way that hides it as self-promotion because it's self-promotion regardless. Mm-hmm. Even if you start it with, I'm so honored. I'm so humbled by you. You're not because whatever follows that is not humble. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think it's OK to recognize and celebrate your accomplishments. I think you should be bold about it. And I think it's really interesting how social media has taken a turn. And maybe because most of my friends online are in the field but it feels like a space that is just meant for promotion and self-promotion at this point and not necessarily a place where I could just be or talk about an issue. I'm thinking about one person in particular. I can't scroll down a group without seeing this person pop something up like 10, 4, 50,000 times. And I'm like, Ugh. 
I don't even think it's that great. (laughs) (laughs) And so that is the reason why I compartmentalize my presence, right? So I know when I'm not logging on Twitter, I'm going to get that. If I'm scrolling, given the people I follow, given our field, I know that's what I'm getting when I'm scrolling through Twitter, right? Mm -hmm. I don't want to get that on Instagram. Mm -hmm. I want to see what's in the shade room. I want to see what's the tea. I want to see what Miss Tina Knowles is talking about. Like, that's not what I want in all spaces of my social media. There's some scholars I just don't follow on Instagram. I'm good. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm going to see you on Twitter. We can kiki there. I don't need to see it all the time across all platforms. But then what does it mean if that's all you are? If across all platforms, that's all it is. To me, that's how you have propositioned social media. So Uh for for you, social media is about self-promotion and you are using that. That's what you have opted into. That's what you have decided to do. And I am not, I'm nobody to tell you, you cannot do that. But for that reason, because people do do that, that's not what social media is to me. So I don't want to see that all across all three platforms. So just know that we see you, <laughs> we hear you, and we applaud you, but we don't need the preface anymore. Just say you're excited. You're excited. Look what I did now. Look at me now. All right. So we got some jokes. Jokes of the week. Jokes of the week. Corny ass jokes. Game face. You ready? Mm-hmm. What does an angry pepper do? What? It gets jalapeno face. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's the way you deliver the lines that's more funny than actual. That was a good one. I like that one. (laughs) Jalapeno face. What do you call someone with no body and no nose? Karen. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody knows. (laughs) (laughs) What do you call a fake noodle? A fake noodle. I don't know. An impasta. (laughs) (laughs) And how many apples grow on a tree? How many? All of them. (laughs) I'm really thinking like. (laughs) 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 These are good this week. These are good. Thank you. (laughs) Want to hear a joke about paper? Oh, we're still going. Sure. I always do five. <laughs> don't don't play me. Sure. A joke about paper. Sure. Never mind. It's terrible. <laughs> I don't get that one. It tears. <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing because I feel slow. <laughs> Thank you. Then and you don't feel sorry for me. They were funny. I think they're great. <laughs> All right. I'm going to use jalapeno face. <laughs> jalapeno face. <laughs> Today, we'd like to recognize just a few folks, some shout outs. Today, we recognize a beautiful soul, Alidra Allen, as she works towards creating a path of her own through the development of her businesses, Purpose and Everything LLC, and Black Greeks for Black Lives. We also recognize Monique Atherley for launching the Atherley Power Group. Like their pages on Facebook and support these powerful women as they move towards elevating underserved communities. In Outrun the Moon, Stacy Lee wrote, I never back down from a challenge before and I don't intend to start today. If nothing else, we are a community of fighters. We thrive because of who we are in spite of our environment and circumstances. Underrepresented folk are delicate, are multifaceted, are resourceful. We are strong and powerful and we are here. Even if you are sustaining yourself at an MSI, we remain entrenched in a predominantly white system as all institutions are still very much connected to the post-secondary sector as a whole. Still, we outrun the moon. Stare your challenges down and thrive. 
You've succeeded in the past, and that won't change for you this week. That's the Scholar Tea this week. Until next time, remember people. Hide your chains. (laughs) Peace, love, and soul. (laughs) (laughs) Love it.